Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. It's now a century and a half since the birth of Rosa Luxemburg. The anniversary fell on March 5th this year. The great Polish-born revolutionary has been a reference point for generations of socialists. But some people might wonder if her key political ideas, developed as they were in the early 20th century, have stood the test of time. Our guest today would give an emphatic yes to that question. Lea Ippi is a professor of political theory at the London School of Economics. Her book Free, about the experience of growing up in communist Albania, will appear this autumn, along with her study of Immanuel Kant. I began by asking her about the relevance of Luxembourg for political theory more than a century after her death. Well, Rosa Luxemburg was described as one of the most brilliant intellects of all the scientific heirs of Marx and Engels by one of her colleagues. And she's certainly one of the most original and also most influential thinkers in the history of Marxism and was also one of the key figures of the socialist movement in the 20th century. And what makes her really stand out and original is a combination of intellectual rigor with political integrity. And this ability, which is rare for Marxists, to merge deep theoretical insight with also political vision. She she was equally committed to knowledge and truth, but she was also committed to militant activism and to the pursuit of the workers' cause. And she, her, her contributions are among the most original in a range of areas of Marxist thinking, from hardcore debates around economic issues, the accumulation of capital, to the critique of globalization in relationship to colonialism and to imperialism, to the question of self-determination, to the question of the relationship between democracy and revolution, to the challenges of parliamentarism and parliamentary reform, to the question of strikes and trade unions um, and the political organization, political parties, and a whole other range of areas. So she uh, she's an interesting and original Marxist whose intellectual fortune, to go back to your initial question, has followed in a way the intellectual fortune and political fortune of socialism in the 20th century. She was very prominent and was heralded as one of the kind of heroes of the working class movement in the German Democratic Republic and in Eastern Europe during the uh, communist period, was marginalized and relatively forgotten in the kind of dark 90s where people thought that, uh, you know, history had come to an end and there was no interest in discussions of socialism that were theoretically rigorous and interested also in the question of revolutionary transformation as much as they were in reformists. And I think more recently, her ideas have been rediscovered and become more prominent again, because scholars have returned to her work as an intellectual and an activist who is interesting to think about the most urgent questions of our time in an original and rigorous way. So she's interesting because she has been both appropriated and distorted, both by Western Marxists who were keen to kind of chart alternative paths to state socialism, but also by socialist states who were attracted to her theory of capitalist crisis and her critique of social democracy. So in the uh, aftermath of, you know, the financial crisis, the current coronavirus crisis and so on, and in the context of an ongoing electoral decline of traditional social democratic parties, her work has 
been uh, rediscovered and has enjoyed a kind of revival as a source of critique of the global political economy, but also as one of the most sophisticated Marxist attempts to think about the relationship between democracy and revolution or to think about traditional questions like uh, what does socialist emancipation mean beyond national boundaries and beyond national democracy. The following report from Germany's DW News looks at the centenary commemoration of Luxembourg's death in 2019. For these marchers, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht are real heroes. Thousands turned out to mark the 100th anniversary of the deaths of the communist leaders, trudging 15 kilometres in the rain to the couple's memorial. Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht were murdered a hundred years ago. Their struggle still counts. We can see that in the rise of militarism. The problems that we have with racism in Germany, the swing to the far right. Those are all reasons why we're here. No doubt, Karl and Rosa are the big idols. They believe they have to continue the struggle the socialists and communists started more than 100 years ago. That's when the tradition began. More than 100,000 followers flanked the coffins of the two revolutionary leaders. Luxembourg and Liebknecht were captured and shot by right-wing paramilitaries, encouraged by the leader of the Social Democrats. Their deaths still divide left-wing politics in Germany. Luxembourg's most famous role as a political activist came in the framework of German social democracy in the years leading up to 1914 and after. But she was born in a very different context, which was the Polish territories then ruled by the Tsarist Empire. How important do you think that was for her later political development? And did it set her apart from the leading figures in the German socialist movement? It did set her apart from the leading figures of the German movement. Uh, She has this very unusual background. She is born, as you say, in Russian-occupied Poland in a Jewish family. And she uh, joined the girls' second high school in Warsaw, which was one of the kind of leading elite schools where she was radicalized and politicized. It was a school that was dominated by the children of Russian officials, where uh, the use of Polish was extremely limited, and the places for children of Jewish families were extremely limited. So one has to see her political development in the light of the context in which her political ideas first emerged and uh, her interest in political activity began to emerge. And her uh, first days of political activism were in the uh, Polish worker movements when she joined illegal revolutionary groups that were agitating against both capitalist oppression, but also the despotic Russian rule. And it was well known by the time in which Luxembourg finished her uh, secondary school, her attitude towards authorities was mentioned in various official school reports. And it was also uh, relatively known that at this time she had joined what was left of the first Polish Socialist Party, which was called Proletariat, which at that point was in disarray because many of its leaders had been imprisoned and executed as a result of the uh, repressor measures taken by Russian authorities after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. So this is the context in which her ideas begin to mature. She was smuggled out of the country because she was faced with imminent arrest around about this time and migrated to Zurich, where she uh, she went to university and where her doctoral dissertation was actually on the industrial development of Poland. So this is where 
her ideas begin to take shape. And her doctoral supervisor said that, uh, who was not a Marxist, said that Luxembourg had been uh, had arrived from Poland already as a fully formed Marxist. So her ideas and the initial context of interaction were Russian-occupied Poland and the uh, revolutionary circles and the revolutionary movement that had begun to develop in this uh, very uh, unusual context, in this kind of context of illegal underground movement, which were constantly at uh, existential threat. And of course, in the Swiss years, so in, after she moves out of Poland and goes to Switzerland to study, her work is also characterized by a mix of kind of academic commitments on the one hand, because she's writing her PhD, but also political work. And she's very young, just over 20, when she was uh, entangled in this fight with the main Polish Socialist Party, which was by then completely committed to a sort of mixture of progressive nationalism and Marxism. And for the recognition of another party, which she contributed to, which was the SDKP, which was the kind of, uh, for the recognition of the SDKP, which was a kind of revolutionary, but not necessarily nationalist Polish party by the Second International. And so she was completely, um, as I say, her, her background, her Polish background was completely fundamental to the development of her political views and to the emergence of her political views. You touched on there the, the fact that Rosen Luxemburg was very sceptical towards Polish nationalism and the idea that a Polish state could be restored to the European map. What was the theoretical rationale behind that position and how did it measure up to later events? So this is one of the most interesting and one of the trickiest aspects of uh, Luxembourg's work is actually because it speaks her position on the nationalism in Poland and on the question of national self-determination in Poland speaks to her stance on national self-determination more generally, which obviously becomes very relevant also later on at the time of her break with German social democracy when the uh, world war uh, breaks out. But uh, to stick to the initial argument and to her initial position, she was against national self-determination for Poland on very uh, what she thought were very Marxist grounds and insisting on strict uh, proletarian internationalism. And this was interesting because although her reasons for being against Polish national self-determination were Marxist, this was not the dominant position in uh, the international amongst Marxists and including Marx himself. So Marxists were traditionally open to arguments for the self-determination of Poland and believed that uh, when self-determination struggles served an emancipatory purpose, they should be supported. And Luxembourg's position was that national self-determination struggles cannot serve emancipatory purpose if they are divorced from the question of proletarian revolution more generally. And this speaks to her uh, then further stance on proletarian revolution and the struggle of the labor movement, which she believes must take uh, a wide form that is transnational. Because she thought that there is a kind of mutual dependence between political and economic power, which in the presence of uh, globalization and exploitation of particular marginalized areas, including Poland within the Russian Empire, for example, made her skeptical of these theories of political emancipation through self-determination. Sometimes uh, scholars think that uh, Luxembourg was against Polish national self-determination because she was not a nationalist. But I think for her, the question was rather, 
if Poland is strong enough to become self-determining, to become independent from Russia, then surely there must be the strength to also extend and to widen the proletarian struggle to include Russia. And so for her, it was a question of how much, uh, how effective can the labor movement be and is national struggle a danger of paralyzing or restricting or narrowing that struggle, or can it actually expand it? And she thought that in the case of Poland, this was a kind of distraction from the general question of we need to turn the whole Russian empire into a socialist entity and to just focus on, on Poland risks just playing the game of the Polish bourgeoisie or serving particular political elites which uh, whose interest might be wedded with this national self-determination question. But is it in the end going to be also in the service of Polish workers? And she thought in this case, you know, the Polish worker would go from being dominated by Russian capital to being dominated by uh, emerging Polish capital. And so the, the question for her more generally was that national liberation movements ended up playing in the hands of liberal ruling elites and ended up weakening the kind of international workers' movement. So this is uh, was this kind of position against national self-determination was one that she maintained throughout her life. As I say, it started with Poland because this is where her ideas emerged and with this is where also her theoretical interests were at the beginning. And so it characterized her years of youth activism in the Polish revolutionary movement, but it also then expanded to uh, when, you know, she came into contact with German uh, social democracy and she criticized German social democrats for failing to stand up, for example, to German imperial projects in Morocco because they were worried of uh, losing ground. And so her whole career is in a way shaped and her whole, whole years of militancy are shaped by this response, by this unique and very original response to the national uh, self-determination question. Ultimately, what she wrote in 1915, which was in the kind of Junius pamphlet, which was that so long as capitalist states exist and so long as globalization and world policies determine the lives of nations, there is no national self-determination available either in times of peace or in times of war. So this is what characterized her position on Polish nationalism. And this is what remained her stance throughout her life also later on when she was faced with other kinds of nationalisms. When Edward Bernstein came forward with the set of ideas that were known as revisionism, uh, Luxembourg became his most implacable critic in the German social democratic movement. What were the central ideas that Bernstein articulated and on what grounds did Luxembourg object to his political thinking? So um, it's worth starting here with the debate, with a kind of revisionist controversy more generally, and the context of that revisionist controversy, of the emergence of it, and to uh, say something briefly about Bernstein's ideas first and then to turn to how Luxembourg responds to them. But Bernstein was, uh, first of all, a very eminent Marxist. He was uh, Engels's close friend. He was known to Marx. He was a collaborator and, and he was a literary executor of Engels. So he was a very senior figure in the German Social Democratic Party. And his theoretical positions on revisionism began to mature as the Prussian government starts to progressively relax the anti-socialist laws which had been promoted by the then Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. And as the social democratic movement continues to uh, grow and to face the question of how far should this demand for legal representation, for political inclusion, go in parallel with the demand for revolutionary struggle and for the overthrow of the existing orders. And so Bernstein believes when he starts to uh, 
contribute to this controversy, and he's he's in the minority at the beginning when he uh, writes the preconditions of socialism at the end of in 1899. Later on, with uh, various articles, he believes that he's arguing for reformism from Marxist principles and on Marxist grounds. He says that Marxism is nothing but a kind of dialectical theory which needs to adapt its theoretical analysis to changes in political circumstances. And so his entire argument starts by saying, look, the political circumstances have changed and we need to uh, come up and to be able to adapt our theory in response to uh, practice. So he criticizes and he begins by criticizing one of the fundamental uh, tenets of Marxian economics, which is the, um, the tendency, as Marx has put it, of the rate of profit to fall under the pressures of uh, technological modernization on the one hand and the kind of increasing exploitation of the labor force. And Marx had said that these two pressures make it inevitable for the system to enter into a fatal crisis. And uh, Bernstein thought that this was no longer the case, that this was the part of Marxian economics that needed to be rethought, this kind of tendency for a crisis in the system. And he believed that this required social democrats to abandon their kind of revolutionary uh, purposes in favor of enacting progressive legislation and trying to represent workers through parliamentary um, struggle. And he insisted that this wasn't a subversion of the teachings of the founding fathers, but it was rather a kind of effort to try and free Marxism from the uh, what he thought was a kind of dialectical materialist straitjacket in which a lot of uh, subsequent followers had uh, put it afterwards. So Luxembourg was was not the only one to protest against Bernstein's reinterpretation of Marxism. As I say, his position was initially discussed and rejected in the Stuttgart conference of the German Social Democratic Party. But what she does, however, is to give it a sort of theoretical, theoretically sophisticated shape, which other German Social Democrats hadn't been able to do at that point. She was very young when she did this. And so she emerged in the German Social Democratic movement as one of the sharpest critics of Bernstein, despite her young age, despite the fact that she was a woman and so on. And what made her... Uh, intervention particularly interesting and particularly uh, sharp was the fact that she said that at the heart of this dilemma that Bernstein had presented between reform and revolution wasn't actually just a tactical question of should we have this method of struggle or that method of struggle. It was what she thought was the very existence of the social democratic movement as a distinctive force in the struggle against capitalism and as a distinctive force vis-a-vis, for example, other liberal progressives or other democratic progressives who might have also been coming to terms with the limits of capital. So the question essentially was about whether democracy and capitalism are compatible. And Bernstein suggested that they were because of the way in which both capitalism and democracy had transformed themselves in the years in which this debate was taking place. So he insisted that uh, this dialectical, this Marxist method should be to adapt the findings of the theory to uh, new empirical results. And he thought that both democracy and capitalism in the 19th century had changed. He thought that capitalism had uh, shown an incredible capacity to adapt and that there were, uh, from the perspective of economic theory, a number of developments which Marxists had to reckon with. And so trade, banking, financial sector expansion, the credit system, the rise of property owners and the emergence of cartels and so on. 
And from the political perspective, Bernstein also thought that representative democracy had also changed and that representative democracy in a way meant already the end of class struggle and the end of class domination. Because he thought that after this relaxation of the anti-socialist laws and the expansion of the German social democratic ranks, after the expansion of the franchise and the strengthening of the workers' unions and cooperatives, all the social democratic parties across Western Europe were becoming uh, more and more relevant political forces. And therefore, that meant that democratic representation and citizenship were the mechanisms of political inclusion and the mechanisms of political emancipation. And so this is why he thought that the social democratic movement could continue to develop regardless of what Bernstein thought was the kind of final goal. So when Luxembourg returns to to this Bernstein dilemma on reform and revolution, she says that, yes, it's possible that reform and revolution as methods of struggle are compatible. But what Bernstein was neglecting was the fact that democracy on the one hand and capitalism on the other weren't uh, compatible. And the reasons she gave for that it have to do with uh, the way in which the structure of globalization works and the role of nation states in a financialized economic system works. So she says that, for example, in responding to Bernstein's remarks on you know, the role of expansion of capital and the development of the credit and the debit system, which meant that the political power of nation states was now, uh, there was more money available to devote to social projects and so on. Luxembourg responded to Bernstein by saying that credit, rather than being a safety valve for a capitalist system, is actually what contributes to its collapse. So she emphasizes that financial capitalism and the availability of loans, for example, aggravates that crisis rather than giving a solution to it. She thinks credit encourages speculation and it uh, increases the inequalities between the kind of real economy and the uh, speculative economy. And so while credit might initially stimulate the development of uh, productive forces, it can also uh, no longer be helpful when it is a, when it becomes a symptom of stagnation. So that was the economic response to Bernstein's argument. So the idea that capitalism has developed that because of the availability of cartels and credit and so on, we can now uh, no longer see this inevitable tendency to crisis. And Luxembourg argued that Bernstein was being very narrow in how he thought about credit and how he thought about what credit offers to a financialized economy. On the other hand, she was also insisting on the idea that what Bernstein thought was political inclusion and possibility of responding to the pressures and the tensions of a capitalist economy with the representation of workers was also itself impossible because she believed that in a capitalist system, the representative system is jigged and is itself at the mercy of capitalist pressures. And so is in fact not so much, uh, it doesn't give the workers the ability to emancipate themselves and to it doesn't give them a voice in the political system. It rather turns the whole project into something that they would no longer recognize. It turns it from, it, it sort of loses sight of the uh, aim of socialist transformation by turning it into a progressive vehicle of adaptation to the uh, demands of liberal parliamentary democracy, which Luxembourg didn't believe Marxists should bend to. She didn't think that national liberal parliamentary democracy is what what should narrow the scope of their struggle. So this the, the response to Bernstein, as I say, takes these two has these two elements. On the one hand, 
a response on the economic level of the argument and on another uh, level, a response to this dilemma around reform and revolution. In the time of Edward Bernstein, a reformist was a socialist who believed that capitalism could be reformed and eventually transformed into socialism without a revolution. A century later, his own party, the SPD, had turned its back on that vision. When the SPD Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder spoke about reform, he meant rolling back social democratic programmes rather than expanding them. We're now going to hear a news report on Schroeder's Hartz IV laws that undermined the German welfare state. It all changed when Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder introduced the biggest set of social reforms in German history. And the Social Democratic Party hasn't recovered since. Nonetheless, Schroeder is adamant the reforms were necessary. If you carry out such reforms, you reduce your chances for re-election, but leadership means being aware of this. Mass protests erupted all over Germany, organised by trade unions. Many SPD members also thought Hartz IV was unfair. After passing Hartz IV, the German Social Democrats went into a sharp decline. The SPD started losing. First the state elections, then the European elections. Recent election results have been the worst for the party since 1945. In Luxembourg's time, socialists would refer to the question of gender equality as the woman question, which now sounds rather strange. Uh, The German socialist leader August Babel used that term in a very influential book called Woman and Socialism. Uh, Luxembourg, however, appears to have been quite resistant to being stereotyped or pigeonholed as an authority on the so-called woman question. She wrote about the same kind of political and economic questions as figures like Karl Kautsky or Rudolf Hilferding or Nikolai Bukharin. Would you say that's a, a fair summary of her approach to the question of gender? This is another interesting question that has troubled uh, Luxembourg commentators for a very long time, because it's another dimension like that of self-determination, where her position is ambiguous and also vulnerable to being distorted in many ways. It's true that Luxembourg was skeptical of what she called bourgeois feminism. And it's also true that she rejected calls from her colleagues in the Second uh, International and in the German Social Democratic Party to be involved in what you just said, what they call the the women question, where, for example, her very close collaborator and colleague, Clara Zetkin, would have been um, very uh, involved and very prominent representative and someone who contributed actively. Her work has been more recently discovered and redescribed in a feminist perspective, sometimes going too much on the other side, sometimes, uh, for example, interpreting Luxembourg's entire theoretical and political work in the light of her being a woman and having uh, the concerns of a woman and often also rereading, for example, her uh, personal relationships, most prominently her relationship with her former comrade and partner Leo Yogisches as fundamental to the development of her ideas. She herself was interesting because she was, I would say, neither someone who was sold on feminism as a matter of pure political identity when it's divorced from these other concerns around prominently class, but also race and uh, imperialism. But on the other hand, she was also not someone who would have uh, stood aside and not been involved in the questions around women emancipation. One good example is her response to um, when the Belgian socialist leader Emile van der Velde made an electoral pact with the liberals. His alliance supported universal male suffrage but dropped the kind of long-standing social democratic requirement to give women the vote. And Luxembourg said that this was a shameful uh, 
uh, move and she attacked his abandonment of this basic socialist principle. But she also wrote more widely about how women's emancipation was crucial to stirring the struggle against capitalism more widely. So again, it was one of these cases where she believed that the question of women emancipation can't be divorced from the question of anti-capitalist struggle because in great part, the plight of women is dependent on the way in which capital dominates and exploits both in the factories, in the workplace, but also in a family. And so her work has also been recently uh, reread and rediscovered in the light of a uh, whole, whole tradition of feminist writings, which combines the uh, question of female women emancipation with the question of uh, thinking about housework, the way in which exploitation of uh, females happens both in the family and uh, in the workplace and so on. Another really interesting dimension of her um, responses to the quest to the women questions is on an article, for example, which she published in 1914, which is not as well known, which is called Proletarian Woman, in which she talks about women's resistance, not just in Europe, but also in Africa and in Latin America, and where she writes very movingly about, for example, the, you know, bones of what she says, the Herrera women, who are, you know, she, she writes bleaching in the sun and who are hunted down by uh, German soldiers in German Africa, or where she writes about, you know, the death cries, as she puts it, of martyred Indian women that are ignored by international capitalists, but also to some extent by uh, those who limit the demand for women's emancipation to a very particular category of uh, woman, to a very particular context, and mostly think of it as a question of pure abstract formal representation, abstract formal rights, and in this slightly more tokenistic way. And she was really against that, and that's what makes her stand out and also more vulnerable to being distorted in this light. In works like The Accumulation of Capital, Luxembourg put forward a distinctive argument about the evolution of capitalism based on the idea that it needed to expand into non-capitalist spaces, which would eventually run out. What was the significance of that argument? Her book on the accumulation of capital, which was written in 1913, develops her criticism of revisionism and combines it with an intervention into the core Marxist analysis around the kind of dynamic structure of of capital accumulation. And there, uh, the book, The Accumulation of Capital, is basically a study of the uh, second volume of Marxist Capital. And it's an effort to try and show how can capitalists survive, how capitalism survives through its expansion to non-capitalist economies. So the book starts with a critique of uh, Marx, whom she thought had in the second volume of Capital based the analysis of the uh, process of capital reproduction by assuming a closed system of accumulation. And so in the second volume of Capital, Marx assumes a market in which there are only capitalists and workers. And Luxembourg criticizes that argument as a kind of theoretical abstraction that neglects the specific economic features of other parts of the world that hadn't caught up with capitalist development. Now, this is an interesting uh, controversy because at the time in which Luxembourg wrote this, the writings that Marx had done on uh, other non-European world, on colonialism, on imperialism, weren't known to her. So more recent Marxist analysis has shown that, in fact, Marx wasn't as blind to this world market in which there were whole non-capitalist areas of the world that needed to catch up with capitalist development. But her contribution is based on a reading where these writings of Marx weren't available at the time. And so she suggests that the closed system analysis, which she had 
inferred and read in the second volume of Capital makes it very difficult to explain why and how capital can be uh, reproduced and valorized when there is constant wage depression and growing income inequality without uh, also helping oneself to arguments around the expansion of capital in other non-capitalist parts of the world. So the, the problem she had with Marx in the accumulation of capital was that basically the assumption of this closed capitalist system in which there were only workers and capitalists made it very difficult to explain what she thought was the kind of fundamental contradiction of capitalism, which is, on the one hand, unlimited expansive capacity of productive forces, and on the other hand, the kind of limited ability to consume, uh, limited ability to uh, social consumption. So her intervention was really interesting because she's one of the first Marxists to draw attention to the consumption side of the process of capital accumulation. And uh, where she explains the incentives of a capitalist economic development by turning to what later economists called the relationship between the rate of savings and the rate of investments, and where her theoretical work anticipates important insights also of later economists like Keynes and, and Kalecki's theories of stagnation. So what she does there is that while... Marx had explained the reproduction of capital with reference only to the development of technology and the competition amongst capitalists. She thought that this doesn't really uh, do justice to why there is this fundamental contradiction and why there is this kind of inevitable tendency towards crisis if it doesn't take if that argument doesn't take into account of the necessity to open up and to access new markets in order to sell consumption goods that domestic workers couldn't afford. So the idea was that workers within capitalist core capitalist countries were so exploited that they couldn't buy these goods that capitalists had to sell. And therefore, uh, in the context of depression and of a depressed economy, which had uh, not sufficient demand for these goods, without this further argument of the necessity to expand to extra European markets, there would be no outlet for accumulated capital. So basically, this is what makes her interested then in the arguments and what's, what gives rise to her arguments on uh, the critique of imperialism, because her core idea is that the expansion of capital in non-capitalist areas of the world through conquest, through trade, through violence, now we would say in our contemporary world through loans and deception, gives precisely this kind of outlet and enables the cheap mass production of goods that aren't sold in the markets of developed capitalist states because of this low consumption makes it available in other areas of the world. And of course, in doing so, they create investment opportunities which displace traditional ways of life and which destroy uh, agricultural, for example, production or non-capitalist systems of production. So there is this twin, on the one hand, the expansion of capital brings in take technological innovations and modernizes and changes kind of relations of authority in these places. But on the other hand, imperial conquest and war subject these entire parts of the world to the political control of more um, developed capitalist countries. And this is relevant still today because one can think of things like international loans or systems of economic and political dependency that place the foreign and the economic policy of capitalist states directly under the influence of these um, neo-colonial or at the time colonial masters. So basically, this focus on the development of non-capitalist areas of the world is what gives Luxembourg this, first of all, 
original insight into what goes on when we're trying to explain the contradictions of capital and why it's important not to understand and not to limit our study of capital to capital as it manifests itself in a particular nation state or in a block of nation states or even an entire territory, let's say, I don't know, Europe or the European Union, for example, but why we need to think about it globally. And on the other hand, it gives her a kind of sensitivity to questions of race and ethnicity and indigenous rights that was not characteristic for uh, the Marxism of her time, which was orthodox Marxists, which were more or less in line and had kind of shared this enlightenment narrative whereby you have a historical development that you have different stages and some of them are primitive, but then, you know, uh, progressive modernization, progressive social relations lead to agricultural, then commercial society, and then capitalist society is the sort of height of modernization. And Luxembourg's writings are really interesting because they show that she thought, for example, that models of common property are in many ways superior to those of commercial society. So she disrupts this stadial theory of historical progress, which was found, as I say, in Enlightenment thinking, from which, uh, from Rousseau to Kant to Hegel, from which Marx was inspired, and which therefore also had in some ways shaped these debates in the uh, Marxist international at the time, in the second international at the time. In works like the Junius pamphlet, Luxembourg passionately condemned the massacre perpetrated by the German colonial army in modern-day Namibia. As the following news report explains, the descendants of the victims are still looking for compensation from the German state. In January 1904, German colonial forces fired the first shot against the Herero people. Three years later, 80% of the tribe had been killed. The paramount chief, who is also a lawyer, has been trying for years to sue the German government in an American jurisdiction. But until now, Berlin has never dared to appear in court. If the Germans do not come this time, we shall apply for what is called default judgment against the German government to be found guilty as charged for genocide against the Hereros and Namas, for expropriating our lands here, our livestock, all of which should have been our inheritance today and that they must pay up. We'll not be talking of a few hundred millions of dollars, not even billions. We'll now we'll talk trillions. Berlin has publicly apologized, but in the Namibian capital, Vintuk, the German ambassador refuses categorically to talk about financial compensation. Reparation is a legal term and is paid to people who are the original victims of any state activity. And here in Namibia, we do not have any victims in the stricter sense. We have descendants of the communities, but not victims of the atrocities of 1904 to 1907. How did Luxembourg understand the relationship between capitalism and democracy over the long run? Did she anticipate any future for the system that Marxists in her time referred to as bourgeois democracy? Um, so the relationship between democracy and capitalism and the relationship between political emancipation and self-determination are in some ways different sides of the same coin for her. So just she argues that just as in times of war, the social democrats are wrong to think that if you uh, don't join the military effort, you're not being a good patriot. She thought that in times of peace, they were wrong to think that these electoral advances and social democratic reforms would by itself bring the end of uh, exploitation. 
But what is interesting to notice, and I think worth emphasizing, is that I don't think Luxembourg ever opposed representation in parliament or uh, the fight for trade union or democratic reforms as such. She, what she opposed was the divorcing of these struggles for reform from the struggle against capitalism as a system and, as we just said, as a, as a global system. So this is clear if we see her writings on women's suffrage, like the fact that she's clearly very involved, campaigning for the importance of including women in the uh, voting process of enfranchising them. And she's very keen on including the demand for women representation in this process of political emancipation through reform. But she believes that political process emancipation through reform must be integrated into a more radical uh, critique of capitalism, where what is important is the access to political power of the working classes. And she believes that if the working classes don't have access to that political power, or if that access to political power becomes a question of compromise between different political elites, as it had ended up, as it has ended up becoming historically, but as it was already showing at the time in which uh, she began to write on these questions, then the whole struggle is um, deprived and devoid of content in a way. It just becomes a, a struggle for formal representation where formal representation is actually not enough to, to achieve the substantive goals of the working class, is not enough to give them access to uh, political power. And so she thought that reforms shouldn't be rejected because she was very keen on learning processes and on learning platforms through which the people, uh, the oppressed people, would learn how to make political decisions and how to prepare for the conquest of political power. But she always insisted that these reforms were, as she put it, trials of freedom. They weren't freedom themselves. And the reason was that uh, these reforms shouldn't be set against the method of revolution, but should be seen as complementary to them. So she thought that historically, the point of legal reform had been to consolidate, for example, emerging social classes after a particular revolution until the balance of forces was such that the whole juridical system could be dismantled in favor of a new system. And so she thought that this is what the terms reform and revolution meant. They weren't different ways of doing things. They were rather juridical. They they, they denoted different juridical transformations. And so the point was not to say, well, do I like reform or do I like revolution as though one was better and one was worse and one was more peaceful and the other was violent. The question was rather to understand that what a revolution brought about was a different way of relating to political power. And for her, access to political power, as I say, was, was crucial. And therefore, legal reform and revolution had to be seen together in order to bring about this radical juridical transformation of political relations, property relations, and so on. So she believed that insofar as the demands of reform were limited to tweaking capitalism here and there, to raising taxes a little bit, or changing the system of distribution of opportunities, to improving the conditions of workers in a particular country, or in a particular city, or in a particular firm, Socialism, on the other hand, and the demand for socialism was a commitment to a completely different kind of society with different juridical principles and where uh, it was a project of both economic and political emancipation and it was a global project, not just a national project. And so this is why she thought that it wasn't when she criticized Bernstein, when she said that Bernstein was 
committed to reform more than revolution. She said, well, that's not the point. The point is that Bernstein is committed to dismantling the very ideals of socialism as access to political power. So this is what makes her uh, discussion around reform and revolution again stand out, because it's not a question of saying Luxembourg is revolutionary and not a reformist. It's rather a question of seeing what is the purpose that reform should serve when we think of capitalism as a global system that can only be dismantled when uh, the exploited have access to political power in a way that is irreversible and in a way that enables them to change juridical relations. The language of revolution made a surprising return to American politics through the Bernie Sanders campaign. Sanders put forward a programme that Rosa Luxemburg would certainly have considered reformist. But he insisted on the need for a political revolution to open the way for those transformations. Who has the power? And I'll tell you who has the power. It's the people who contribute money, the billionaires who contribute money to political campaigns, who control the legislative agenda. Those people have the power. And if you want to make real changes in this country, if you want to create an economy that works for all, not just the few, if you want to guarantee quality health care to all, not make $100 billion in profit for the health care industry, you know what you need? You need to take on Wall Street. You need to take on the drug companies and the insurance companies and the fossil fuel industry. You don't take campaign contributions from them. You take them on and create an economy that works for all. Joe Biden found himself having to explain why a revolution wasn't a good idea. Make the case for why a revolution is not what the country needs or wants. We have problems we have to solve now. Now, what's a revolution going to do? Disrupt everything in the meantime? Look, Bernie talks about, excuse me, the senator talks about his Medicare for all. He still hasn't told you how he's going to ever get it passed. He hasn't told you how, in fact, there's any possibility of that happening. He hadn't told you how much it's going to cost. He hadn't tell you how it's going to apply. It doesn't kick in for four years, even after it passes. We want a revolution. Let's act now. Pass the Biden health care plan, which takes Obamacare, restores all the cuts made to it, subsidizes further. How did Luxembourg respond to the war clouds that were gathering in European politics and then to the outbreak of war itself in 1914? Uh, so 1914 is the year in which Luxembourg breaks uh, for good with German social democracy. The rift has already started earlier on. Uh, she was uh, already began to be known as Bloody Rosa in the liberal press at the time around 1907, 1914. So in 1914, when, when the war breaks, it consolidates her uh, divorce with German social democracy, at least with the kind of reformist wing of German social democracy. But one can see the cracks already earlier on because her political stance from early on begins to evolve in a direction that is opposite to the uh, German social democratic leadership. It begins to show, for example, when the uh, social democrats are reluctant to condemn imperialism and the kind of imperialist ventures of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II in Morocco, where she uh, she sees this reluctance of the SPD to come out uh, clearly against imperialism because of the worry that they would lose votes and that they would lose political representation and that, that there would be a kind of shrinking of the labor movement which had been growing up to that point. So she this stance already, which, as I say, begins to show already with the positions on imperialism, politics in Europe well before the world war breaks makes her aware of the dangers of nationalism for the labor movement that claims to be international 
and uh, makes her worried that the social democrats might support a possible war. And she sees that there is a kind of growing militarism in society, which her social democratic colleagues are increasingly reluctant to, to condemn. And so she becomes isolated already early on. And as we know, uh, the, the parliamentary party was, she sees it as extremely involved in debates around taxation and suffrage. And she writes to advocate mass struggles and the agitation for a kind of republic where the workers would conquest political power. So uh, her proposals to agitate and to uh, develop the struggle in parallel, this kind of revolutionary struggle, we would say in parallel to, to reform, are increasingly met with hostility already before the war breaks. And when the war breaks, it comes in 1914 and the uh, SPD, the Social Democratic Party, votes in favor of war credits. This is basically then just collapsing and capitulating and embracing this crude nationalism at the expense of the internationalist promise that uh, the working classes would work wherever, regardless of national boundaries. And so she sees workers that were united against capitalists now they kill each other at the border under different flags. And so this is where Luxembourg breaks from the German social democracy and finds uh, and, and, and where she grounds the, the Spartacus groups, which is a group which continues to agitate for an end to the war and to concentrate for the proletariat struggle against capitalism on an international basis. So and and then uh, she's imprisoned after that, after the war breaks, and she uh, writes in prison the crisis of social democracy, which is also known as the the Junius pamphlet, which is a kind of synthesis of her critique of the limits of parliamentarism and the pursuit of compromise for the end of, as an end in itself, and also is the synthesis of the what it means then what it means for social democracy as a kind of revolutionary project to in the end, fail to commit to this principled internationalism and to just limit oneself to the organization on a national basis, what this brings is then the commitment to um, to patriotism and the participation to war and the complete abandonment of the uh, proletarian struggle as an international struggle. The United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. The mood of patriotic fervor in Germany and other European states in the early stages of the war was replicated in the US after the 9-11 attacks. In this conflict, there is no neutral ground. If any government sponsors the outlaws and killers of innocents, they have become outlaws and murderers themselves. And they will take that lonely path at their own peril. In the face of today's new threat, the only way to pursue peace is to pursue those who threaten it. Like the anti-war socialists of 1914, one member of Congress, Barbara Lee, voted against the motion in favour of war. Lee was bitterly denounced for her stand. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. 
Now, this resolution will pass, although we all know that the President can wage a war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment, let's just pause just for a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today, and I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Thank you, and I yield the balance of my time. Luxembourg's critique of Lenin and the Bolsheviks is quite well known, but mainly perhaps in the form of isolated fragments rather than having a clear sense of the whole argument. What were the key points that she made? So I think uh, it's important when reading precisely to avoid this impression that there's sort of isolated critique of the Bolsheviks and of Lenin and the Bolshevik project as a whole to see the critique that Rosa Luxemburg gives, but also the support that he gives, that she gives to these um, projects by thinking about how she responds to not just the uh, Bolshevik revolution of 1917, but also to the 1905, the first Russian revolution, which is, as you know, uh, Lenin said famously, the dress rehearsal for the subsequent Bolshevik revolution. And so to understand the kind of dilemmas that both of these revolutions present to the workers' movement internationally, it's worth thinking about how the socialist movement as a whole is in context, how it looks at both the point of the first Russian revolution, 1905, and then 1917. And what Luxembourg has to say about the Bolshevik project as a whole is found in writings that come from both of these periods. And so can be constructed, I think, more coherently if one thinks about both of these periods um, together. So to start with the uh, 1905 revolution, the 1905 revolution finds the uh, socialist movement very deeply divided. On the one hand, you have in the West socialist parties that are making electoral gains and that are united in the recognition of the authority of the international, but then on the other hand are deeply divided on both matters of principle and of tactics, as we have just explained, thinking about the Luxembourg-Bernstein controversy. Now, what happens is that in Russia, there is no direct equivalent to this debate on reform versus revolution because the socialists all work underground and are just divided basically on questions of membership and party organization. There's no question for the socialists in Russia in 1905 and in 1917 of what does... Later in 1917, things appear a bit different. But in 1905, there's no question of legal recognition of the workers' movement, parliamentary struggle, should we compromise with the ruling elites and so on. These are all the luxuries of the German social democrats, which the Russians don't have. In 1905 what you have is a kind of revolution that breaks after decades of exploitation, of empowerment, of authoritarian violence. And the Russian revolution of 1905 isn't a sort of single revolution as much as a sum of a number of events of years of mass strikes and border unrests and mass demonstrations and so on. So basically, she... In this period, she's very interested, obviously, in the Russian uh, revolution. 
1905. She follows the events very closely, and she published several interventions in which she debated with Lenin on the role of the masses and the party in revolutionary circumstances, and in which, as a result of those debates with Lenin, she also tries to persuade the, her colleagues in the uh, German Social Democratic Party to adopt the mass strike as a political weapon to advance the cause of workers also in Germany as it had been adopted in Russia. So she then, in 1905, smuggles herself to uh, the Russian part of Poland and tries to reach Warsaw and she's arrested again and first confined. So she also has this journey, this personal journey, which is deeply involved in connection to the uh, Russian movement, the Polish movement, and to these efforts to try and connect the struggles of Polish workers, German workers, Russian workers at the same time. And the, her famous, one of her most famous uh, pamphlets, The Mass Strike, the Party and the Trade Union, is the result of her analysis, which reflects on all these events and which reflects on the lessons of the 1905 revolution, which she also tries to take to German social democracy. And it's very interesting when she comes to Germany with these lessons from the Russian Revolution and she suggests to the Party Congress in Jena in 1905 the mass struggle and talks about, you know, what gains the Russians had made and what could be learned from Russian social democracy. Bebel, which was one of the party founders, says that, you know, he's joking that as she listens to her speech, there's so much blood and revolution. And he says, I was kept looking at my shoes to see if they weren't, in fact, already full of blood. So this is the reputation that she develops for her commitment to the Russian Revolution of 1905 and for her efforts and attempts to reflect on these lessons that could be learned from this revolutionary underground movement that develops in circumstances that are very different from those of German social democracy. And it's her position as, in a way, someone who is originally from Poland that puts her at the intersection of the twin pressures of this movement. She's able to see that circumstances in Russia are very different from circumstances in Germany. So that's the uh, 1905 revolution. The 1917 revolution, she reflects on on, in a different essay, which is a work that has been often considered, you know, the, the synthesis of her thoughts on the Russian Revolution, which was published after her death, which in fact is a defense of the October Revolution. So she is she writes this while she's in prison, uh, and she praises the Bolsheviks because she believes that the Bolshevik Revolution is a sign of the possibility of a proletarian revolutionary struggle, even under these deeply oppressive circumstances. And at the same time as praising the Bolsheviks and supporting the October Revolution, she also uh, basically draws attention to what she thought were some of the limitations of the movement and the way in which they had reflected on the relationship between party elites, for example, and the masses of uh, the oppressed. So on the one hand, in this essay, she criticizes some of the policies of the Bolsheviks when they came to power, so land granting to peasants, or, for example, the fact that they continue to insist on national uh, self-determination. And on the other hand, she also criticizes the suppression of what she thinks is revolutionary democracy, where uh, she draws attention to uh, the party bureaucratization and to some of the measures that had been taken to uh, limit the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, freedom of association, and where she believes that the uh, Bolsheviks are beginning to divorce socialism and democracy in a way that is extremely dangerous. Uh, in a way that concentrates power in the hands of uh, a few members of the party elites and that risks destroying the kind of basis for the further development of the revolution 
in Russia. So in this context is where her writings, her more critical remarks on the Russian revolution come up. This is where she talks about the risks of suppressing dissent. She talks about the uh, dangers of censorship. She talks about what this entails for the revolutionary movement as a whole. And where most perceptively, she raises the question of what happens when the revolution is brought about in this way, how it risks concentrating power for later on in a class of uh, party bureaucrats who are no longer connected to the masses and to the struggle of the masses, but then begin begin to develop their own interests and their own um, accumulation of power. So basically, it's here where she, and, and this is also where her famous sentence, freedom is the freedom of those who think differently, is it's in this context that it should be read. What makes this critique particularly interesting is that she's extremely insightful in seeing what happens to a kind of revolution where the leaders of the revolution, the vanguard, becomes progressively alienated and divorced from the demands of the masses and from this process of revolutionary struggle as one which is itself a kind of learning process where it's only by participating in the struggle that you learn how to govern and how to instantiate order in the future. But it's also important to see that uh, she's um, extremely hostile to the efforts to, of the German social democrats to then say, well, then, you know, the Bolshevik revolution should never have happened. The proletariat should never have come to power in this way because the German social democratic method is the right one. She's also extremely uh, hostile to the way in which, for example, people like Kautsky say the country in Russia is not ripe for a revolution. She says that, in fact, she's in favor of this revolutionary effort and she's in favor of this process of involvement of the masses in the revolutionary effort. And in fact, she writes that it's important for the uh, revolutionaries in Russia to exercise a dictatorship, as she puts it, but a dictatorship which is not a dictatorship of a party or of a small clique, but of the, dictator of, but the dictatorship of the whole uh, working classes, which happens with the active participation of the popular masses, and which also happens in a, in, a, in a kind of democratic way, which is, again, one of these things that at first sight seems like a contradiction. How could a dictatorship be also democratic? But if one thinks about the role of the masses in the way in which Rosa Luxemburg reflects on political emancipation, makes perfect sense when one thinks of this democratic dictatorship as a kind of emergency measure that is truly representative of the oppressed people. As a final question, um, what do you think Luxembourg still has to offer? What are the main things that she has to offer as a thinker when set against the ideas that are prevalent today in political theory and political philosophy? So I think Luxembourg is an extremely important thinker whose ideas should be taken seriously, in part because she contributes, I think, to a Marxist tradition that is deeply concerned about freedom. And what animates her entire work, her economic work, her political work, her work on self-determination, on uh, gender questions and so on, is this question of freedom and under what conditions freedom can be fully realized. And how should we think about freedom, both in normal circumstances, but also in circumstances of crisis and transition and revolution, where there is a risk that certain tendencies, that certain ways of putting in action certain forces risk undermining the initial emancipatory goals of this class of oppressed people. So one of the questions that animates her work is the question of freedom, which I think she shares with Marxists and which shows us why uh, socialism as a theory in general 
contributes to this debate around freedom that liberals already raised but are ultimately unable to realize. Then there's different strands to her thought that all come together to give us her writings are scattered. So we don't have a kind of organic body of thought. We have writings and pamphlets and we have um, different articles. We have letters. But there's three dimensions. First of all, the question of economic exploitation and economic exploitation by a capital that is global and needs to reckon with the pressures of globalization and with its own limitations of expansion. The second one is the question of political organization, the question of how to bring together reform and uh, revolution, how to think about using both methods depending on the circumstances without losing sight of the final goal as the traditional social democrats have done. The third dimension if that of, is that of organization, how to think about the relationship between a party and the social movement that at, at both moments, at the moment of revolutionary struggle, but also when the party is in power and when the social movement is in power and how to retain these gains of revolution. And finally, how to think about oppression in a way that is genuinely intersectional, we would say, that genuinely brings together the concerns of gender-based oppression, race-based oppression, and class-based oppression in a critique of the capitalist system as a whole that is a critique that is also global and that takes into account of these differentiated struggles in different parts of the globe. And so she really sets the example for how to think around these different questions in a way that doesn't set them against each other, but that helps us develop a kind of current alternative to the uh, status quo. Many thanks to Leia Ippi for giving us such a comprehensive summary of Rosa Luxemburg's political thought. You can also read the article Leia has written for Jacobin about Luxembourg, titled From Reform to Revolution. <laughs>